Good morning. It's good to have you guys this morning. Uh, let me just open us up a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you for, uh, we just thank you for you. Um, we are so incredibly small and short-lived. We've all just showed up on this place less than 100 years ago, and most of us far less than 40 years ago. And our time here is short. Um, we didn't make the place, and we won't finish the place, and we don't even have the ability to know ourselves. We don't have the ability to control ourselves. And we live in a world, Lord, that obviously is far bigger than us and has great, great brokenness. So, Father, we just confess the smallness of us, the brokenness of us, and, but you said you've given us a greater grace. And so, as we look at Jesus this morning, uh, we don't come as people moaning the difficulty of things, Lord. We're going to come to you looking upon Jesus as being the one who is greater than the brokenness of this world and the one who's brought us to life. So, Jesus, we ask that you would do a great work in us in showing us your glories in your text this morning. Speak to our hearts, Father. Bring us your word with great power. Spirit, please stir in us, um, both in what we understand and then really what we believe, Lord, that there would not be a rift between what we uh, assent to in our heads and what we believe in our hearts. So please push belief um, really so that we might live in the joys that you've given us. Jesus, we might be able to take advantage of the life and the, and the vitality and the joy that, that you have come to present us with, that we might have eternal life to know you, the true living God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So we ask that you please be at this this morning. And I ask that you be with me, Father, that you would guide me by your spirit. And uh, may I be clear and be with us all, Lord, as we listen to your word. May we be attentive and believing, and filled with the fruit of the Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 4 this morning. We'd invite you to turn there and get in front of you. It's a rather simple passage, a shorty. You know, sometimes we err on the side of longies here. And uh, big, long passages, and have to fly through them today. I disciplined myself. I looked upon the passage. We're coming up, and we have, we have the temptation of Jesus. And uh, normal Scott Burns would say, hey, let's do the, all the temptation of Jesus, but like, uh, we're going we're gonna to slow it down. We're going to work our way through the temptation of Jesus in three sermons over the next three weeks. And so we have a little moment to breathe because there's a number of things I want to kind of pull out of the passage and show us as we, as we go along. So, oh, by the way, in case I haven't got to meet you and there's some of you who haven't met, met my name is Scott Burns, one of the pastors, the one who always been preaching this morning. And uh, it's good to have you guys here this morning as we, as we worship together. In in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, we fit ourselves right on the end of last week's passage, which was Matthew 3, which is the baptism of Jesus. And this amazing, uh, this amazing episode that, that Andrew walked us through where, where Christ comes to John the Baptist, who's carrying the message of God to the, to the world, particularly to the people of Israel, comes to John the Baptist and says, John, John, I need to be baptized by you. And of course, like if you were John the Baptist and part of your message was, there's a Messiah coming, and all of a sudden you see him, who is incidentally your cousin, but now you realize, oh, his job and your job. And he says, I need to be baptized by you. And you've been saying all along, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal, which is a deep sign of lowliness. You're going to have a problem with that, right? Where you're like, whoa, 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 this is not right. And Jesus did this throughout his ministry. He would say things, and sometimes his followers were not ready for those things. And sometimes they looked too humble or too low or too backwards. And, of course, there's the famous incident of Peter where he says, you know, Christ, Jesus says, I'm going to die and rise again. And Peter 
brings him aside and says, Jesus, this can't happen, right? I'm not going to submit to this. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Likewise, Jesus tells John, John needs you to baptize me. And John's like, oh, no way. And he goes, permit this. And, and John follows Jesus and permits it. And John baptizes Jesus. What a bizarre moment, right? To baptize the Messiah, the Son of God. And as, as Jesus comes out of the water as he's praying, uh, there is this great Trinitarian display. Because in the Old Testament, we understood who God was. It was a rather a simple monotheism. There was hints of a trinity, hints of a trinity of a father and a son and a spirit, but very, very little details. But in the New Testament, really, it's the unfolding of the Trinitarian nature of God, one being three persons. And really there we see this great first event where Jesus comes out of the water and the Spirit descends like a dove, and the Father lights the place of what this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It's like, boom, like the whole Trinity sitting there right there. And it's an amazing passage, and in that moment, Jesus didn't discover he was the Son of God. He, Jesus knew that before. Jesus knew that even as a child. If you think back to Luke, there's that incident where Jesus and, and Joseph and Mary, they take the caravan ride into Jerusalem, and then they leave, and all of a sudden, it must have been quite the caravan, um, mom and dad realize, hey, have you seen Jesus? No, have you seen Jesus? The whoopee yui. They go back, and Jesus is sitting in the temple having this high-level discussion with the teachers. And his response is, I'm doing. Mary says, your father and I have missed you. And he goes, I'm here in my father's building doing my father's work. Like, Jesus knew who he was. He knew he was the son of God from before. So here we are at the end of this passage of Jesus being shown as the son of God. And the next move in all of the epistles uh, sorry, all the Gospels. So just lock this in. You might know this already. The, there are four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the first three are called the synoptic Gospels. They are very synonymous. Therefore, synoptic, right? And they look a lot alike. Mark is the little stubby one in the middle. Matthew's a little bit longer. Luke is very much great detail. And then comes John after that. And John is written after those. And really, John fills in a lot of the details that aren't covered in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and often doesn't even talk about the things that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John they speak of. So in Matthew here, and in Mark, and in Luke, right after Jesus is baptized, the next scene is Jesus is being moved directly into the wilderness to prepare himself for ministry. Now, I have to tell you, when I read this passage, and I, 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 think, I think I realized I've never actually taught through the temptation of Jesus. I don't know. I feel like I have. Have I ever taught through? I don't know. Um, she's heard most of this. Um, but I feel like I had, but I, I just don't think I actually have taught through the temptation of Jesus. Um, but I have this real problem. Okay, back in the day, in California, I used to do like free diving, spear fishing, lobster catching. And uh, some people tried talking me into diving at night with a flashlight. And um, if you've ever div- dove in the ocean at night with a flashlight, <coughs> the problem is you get these like super bright flashlights and they shine everywhere. It'll blind you out in the daylight. But you get in the water. And that thing turns into a lightsaber. Boom. Like there's no afterglow, right? So if you're out in the, in the woods and you take your flashlight like this here, you see what's in front of you, but you kind of see on the sides. So if there's like a scary person or an animal or something like that, you're like, hey, I can see you. When you're in the water, there ain't no side glare. Like all you got is this beam. And like you're just, you're just shining here. All that illuminates is what's in the beam. And then once it moves past this, it's gone. And uh, I decided I didn't like that sport. It's kind of creepy. Um, <laughs> I just didn't like the way light worked, but I've really realized, realized over time that, that for me, studying the scriptures is often like, like a light in the ocean at night. Like I, I'll study a passage, and I'll really understand it, and the Lord stirs my heart with it, and then three weeks later, I have no recollection of that passage. I mean, I translated it and preached it two times, and I can't even remember I've read the passage. Like, 
Maybe it's just brokenness of my mind. Maybe it's the design of God's word in many ways that we're not allowed to simply master it and move on. But all to say, I don't remember teaching this passage ever before. And so when I come to the, to the temptation of Jesus, there's an easy level of what's going on here. The easy level is that this is God's plan. The Spirit is leading Jesus in the wilderness to face a direct verbal attack from Satan and is preparing Jesus for his ministry. So kind of straightforward. And there's three temptations given and that the city interacts with him. That's kind of the easy level. But there's a harder level, like why these three? Um, there's some other questions I want to go into today, but why these three temptations? What is really going on here? And this is where I'm really thankful this week for older pastors and scholars and the faith that really helped me as I studied this passage along to kind of get me past some of my, my stuck points. I likewise encourage all of us in our fellowship, like, don't just study Scripture on your own. Like, interact with your brothers and sisters over it. Learn things from them. Uh, learn things that you could never see because some of their giftedness and their perspectives and share the things that, that you are studying. There's only one interpretation to Scriptures, uh, but sometimes it can be hard work understanding that. God gives us His Spirit. We study it through the power of His Spirit. And then we also use one another in helping ourselves stay on the straight and narrow and not making up junk about Jesus because junk about Jesus is bad, bad junk. All right, so the harder level, what are these three testings? And I think these guys were really helpful to me. Remembering this, that the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, actually probably the first three quarters of the Bible, is the stem and the bud for the coming flower of Jesus in the New Testament. The Old Testament is there to set up Jesus and his testament. And there's a massive theme in the Old Testament referring to promises. Remember Abraham? Um, there is this promise given to Abraham that, that there would be, he would have a seed, he would have a, have a descendant. And these promises are given to Abraham to that seed. And we hit that a couple years ago in Galatians, and we had that this past year in Romans. So there's all these promises going to the seed, the descendant of Abraham. And... Um, and that, that seed someday would be the one who would eventually crush the serpent's head. And that was prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3. So all along the line, we're looking for this guy, the one, the anointed one, the Messiah. And all throughout the history of the Old Testament, there were moments where they were thinking, well, is this the person? Is this the person? Um, is Moses the person? Is Isaac the person? Is Joseph the person? Is David the person? Is Solomon the person? Is Habakkuk the person? Is, are these could this one be the one? And every single time, they all fail, and they demonstrate to not be the one. They're probably precursors. They're kind of hints of the one to come, but they are not the one. And on a second level, God's people together, God calls them his son. If you remember back, well, we're going to hit Christmas season pretty soon, right? And there's a little prophecy in the middle of it. Out of Egypt, I have called my son, referring to Jesus, because Jesus goes and lives in Egypt and is brought back out. It's a prophecy, but it's a hidden prophecy, because in the original context, is talking about the corporate son of Israel. God says, out of Egypt, I have called my son Israel. He pulled them out. Remember the, the ten plagues and, and the crossing of the Red Sea piece right there? Israel was his corporate son collectively. And when God called that son Israel out of Egypt into the Sinai Peninsula, he diverted them into the desert for 40 years to test and train them. And for 40 years, they persistently failed the test pretty badly. So not even the corporate people of Israel, they're not the one. They're not the Messiah. They're not the ones ultimately the promise would go to. They failed those tests time and time again. And God says in Deuteronomy, uh, that test is done by the time of Deuteronomy. God says he tested them with hunger. And then in turn, they tested God. They, they goaded him and they prodded God 
with grumbling and complaining. And so they failed the test of hunger. They failed the test of complaining. They failed the test of worshiping other gods. So the desert and the wilderness was a time of corporate failure for Israel. So here's the key to the temptation passage. Jesus is brought out from his, from his baptism into the, de- into the desert for 40 days, 40 nights, paralleling the fact that the corporate son, Israel, was brought out of Egypt into the desert for 40 years. Where they were tested and failed, Jesus would be tested and not fail. He would crush it, do it perfectly, and he would fulfill all righteousness. The 40 years in the desert were a pre-show to the 40 days in the desert for the real son. And so therefore the things that are said in this passage here are pretty astounding. And really the key of it is looking how Jesus answers Satan every time. So we'll cover this over three weeks. But every time, every time Jesus answers, he's answering out of Moses' sermon to the Israelites at the end of 40 years. Remember that food thing, how we, cru- how we la- did lame on that? Remember that complaining thing, how we did lame on that? Remember that worship thing, how we did lame on that? Jesus is quoting out of that sermon every time to connect the dots here between himself, the world, Satan, of who he is. He is the true son facing the two s- true ses- test, and he fulfilled all righteousness. So the 40-year testing of Israel in the wilderness was a foreshadow of the future ultimate 40 t- testing of Jesus in the desert in which he would be victorious. That's where we're going with this. So take a look at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I think that's a funny statement, um, but it's true. He was hungry after 40 days, very hungry. Different than the hunger you're starting to feel right now is your Buckeye donut has starting to wear off right now, like a a savage, deep, deep hungry. And I just want to pull out two things out of this very, very simply today in the very first part of this. Um, Sorry about this here. I have managed to escalate past my entire slideshow. The first piece is, our title today is The Son Who Trusted the Father's Words. Our first piece was this, Jesus was led by the Spirit and fasted. Jesus was led by the Spirit and fasted. In 1 Peter 2.21, we are told that Christ left for us the perfect example of how we endure all things, including suffering. So we looked at Jesus, and we remember, number one, in our gospel thinking of this, that we are all people separated from the world. Jesus did co- didn't come here applauding anybody. He came here to tell us to stop in our tracks, that we can be reconciled to God, and the only way we can be reconciled to God, where we'd be owned by God, and God would be our God, and we'd be his people, is if we want that. We want that repentance now. We want to be under God and not separated from God. And if we want that, we have to also submit to the vehicle by which that would happen, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus, namely the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection accomplished what we couldn't accomplish. So if we, want, if we want reconciliation with God, if we want to be his daughter, if we want to be his son, if we want to be owned by him, if we want him to be, if we want him to be our treasure, the only way that can happen is through transformation through the death of your death and new life given. And you don't have that in you, and I don't have that in you. Silas doesn't even have that in him, right? We don't have that within us. That's why Christ, when he got done telling us about it, why Jesus allowed himself to be executed was to pay a death penalty for my sentence and your sentence. So reconciliation with Jesus is that offer. The payment is granted through the life of Jesus. We put our faith in the promise of God that he will reconcile us to the work of Jesus. When we do that, we now have 
the Spirit of God in us. It is one of the gifts that God gives is He's going to abide with us. So we are not just, well, I guess my status has changed and now I have the heavenly God is my Father somehow, but he actually He puts His Spirit inside us. So His Spirit is inside of us. And His Son is not only our forgiveness and our righteousness, but He's also our example. We look to Him and how He does things to follow His lead. And so in this passage here, we see Jesus led by the Spirit and He fasted. Two small things, I won't speak longly on this, but number one, Jesus has always been God and became a man the moment he was conceived as a baby. Jesus continues his humanity on throughout the end of eternity. Jesus in heaven right now is fully God and fully man. And there are things he does, according to the book of Hebrews, that are resting upon the fact that he is God and he is man. So we need that godness and madness of him. When he comes in this passage here and he's walking on earth, the people will see him. When they see him, they see his humanity. What we're seeing in this passage here is that Jesus is following the Father perfect in his, perfectly in his humanity. Jesus, who is divine, is being led by the Spirit. Now, if you want to know, no, I'm not even going to go there. He's being led by the Spirit, and he does it perfectly as the perfect man of faith. Likewise, us, we have the Spirit. This is the way that God has granted us to go forward in this life of sustaining and admission and evangelism and a purpose God has given us the Spirit to follow Him. We talked about that a couple of weeks back, and if you didn't catch that sermon, I really encourage you to. So we see Jesus being led by the Spirit, and what's interesting is that often we equate the leading of the Spirit into something being finished or easy or ended or accomplished, a successful look. But notice the perfect leading of the Spirit and the perfect following of the Spirit. The Spirit's leading does not lead us necessarily to things that look successful. The, the, the wilderness wasn't a successful look. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness where he would lead him into fasting for 40 days. That's hard. I don't need to explain why that's hard. And then after that, three temptations by Satan himself. That is a very, very difficult and hard-looking leading. So sometimes we think, hey, if it's really the leading of the Spirit, well, it means that that person is really going to welcome the gospel message that we spoke to them. Or the building would be purchased or the job will be enjoyable, or the relationship will be easy. Um, but welcomed, secured, enjoyable, or easy are not even close to being signs of the Spirit's leading. So when we think through what we are looking for, the leading of the Spirit, there's no way in the world you can ever say, all right, well, I'm seeking the leading of the Spirit, but it ended up being a hard thing, so I must have misread, misread that. But we need to understand the Spirit leads us into difficult things at difficult times at God's purpose in God's ways. So never equate success to the Spirit's leading in the sense of seeing success and say, well, it has to be the Spirit's leading because it appears to be success. The church is flourishing, so therefore the Spirit must be at work. Movie theaters flourish. Nazis flourish. There's all kinds of things that flourish in the world aside from the Spirit of God. And likewise, when we see a faithful believer who is resting on the Spirit of God and things are hard, don't you dare ever say they're not following the Spirit. They very well may follow the Spirit in ways you never have ever seen before. So the Spirit of God does lead us, and it doesn't always lead us in ways that we would guess, because if we could guess it, we probably wouldn't need the Spirit to lead us. Number two, Jesus fasted. There's food in the desert. He fasted. Now, Jesus had a cousin. His name is John. Had kind of a tough diet. Locusts. Guys eating grasshoppers. There are ways to survive in the desert. Many of us can attest to that. So there's food out there in the desert, Jesus isn't eating the food in the desert. The Father, through the Spirit, has led Jesus into the wilderness, and he's leading him to fast. It's something that the Father wants him to do. So much so that Satan, in his first temptation, 
is trying to talk Jesus into ending his fasting obedience with the first test. Okay, so Jesus is being led into fasting. I simply say, well, what is, what you're thinking, what is fasting? Fasting is abstaining from food in order to gain focus, a mindfulness. It doesn't make your prayer better or heard more, but it does allow you the chance to really focus in prayer because the hunger, or for those with health or eating challenges, some other kind of persistent discomfort or agitation that derails mindlessness or distraction, because the hunger pulls us to mindlessness, to mindfulness, just makes us uneasy, just brings us back to attention. We're not just in our zone, doing our thing. So fasting is incurring some kind of discomfort that brings about mindfulness. It breaks through our mindlessness so that we can pray without ceasing, those kind of things. And if you have some health conditions, there's some of you guys that absolutely shouldn't be fasting from food, there's other ways you can do that. You try to find something that's really going to annoy you, bring things to mind, get your attention. You're not getting points for like, oh man, he's, she's really annoyed today. But what it does is it's just snapping you out of your mode. So don't, don't confuse fasting with some noble aspect of setting aside some kind of like, probably set some kind of pleasure aside. Like find something that's going to stir you up again and again because it's going to be something that messes with your head and just knocks you out of mindlessness and brings you back to prayer. So short question. If Jesus needed to fast, are we stronger than him and that we wouldn't need to fast ourselves? I'd probably say the answer would be no. In fact, Jesus himself says later on, my disciples will fast. After I leave, they will fast in remembrance of his absence. So I would just simply say this, um, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you uh, to think about fasting. If you've never done it before, have you pulled this amazingly effective and helpful prayer tool out of its package and use it in your life? If you haven't, uh, talk to a few of us. We could talk to you about it. It's, there's nothing magical. It's literally the, easiest, literally the easiest thing in the world to do. You don't do something, right? It's free. You don't need to buy a book. You don't need to buy food. You don't buy nothing. It's like literally you do nothing and you spend nothing. It's amazing. And in it, it becomes one of those powerful tools I've ever encountered in my walk with Jesus to like s- snap me out of the mode of like just all the people in front of me and all the dreams I have. Like get hungry. Oh, that will remind me. Get hungry and don't like satiate it with something right away. Stay hungry because I want to stay prayerful. So there it is. Jesus led by the Spirit. And he fasted. Our second piece in our text is this. The devil meets his prey and his maker. The devil meets his prey and his maker. In our text earlier, we saw that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So it's the Father's desire through the Spirit to lead the Son face to face with the devil so that Jesus himself would be tested and tempted by the devil. I want to take a moment today to talk about the reality of the devil. So... Um, you know, most of us, even aside from Jesus, we have a concept of the devil, right? And it's, sometimes it's cartoony. Sometimes it's just kind of like this weird, vague notion, kind of like Sasquatch or unicorns or something like that. I just want to briefly touch base on the devil and what we do with him. Number one, the devil has a couple different names in Scripture if you're new to reading the Scriptures. The word devil and the word Satan, those are both names that he uses. There's other titles, um, the dragon is one of the, t- the titles. It gets in the book of Revelation. Beelzebul is another one. So there's a number of names that go by. It's the same being. His name is the devil or Satan. We even see those names being used interchangeably in the different accounts of this very temptation. In one he's referred to as the devil, one he's referred to as Satan. His name, the devil, means to throw against, to slander, like to cast accusation against, to, to, to tear down, to be an adversary. 
And he's the adversary bent on separating trust and worship from the living God. He has a name. He wants to separate trust and worship from the living God. That's what he wants. That's what he's always want. He is a created being of God. We think from the Old Testament accounts, most likely, that he um, fell in heaven, sweeping a bunch of angels along with him, and is deposed to earth. He's the one we see in the, in the garden, tempting Adam and Eve, doing his aim. His whole goal wasn't to get those folks to eat at avocado. Um, his whole goal was to get them to separate from the trust and worship of God, to say that they actually could be the discerners of what is true and what, tr- what is not true, what is good and what is evil. They don't have to submit to him for that. They can be the judges of that. And he won the day. And Adam ate that on behalf of all of us and cast our world in turmoil. So he is now still alive. He is not omnipresent. He is not, he's not everywhere at one time. He is not all-knowing. He is not eternal. He, will have, he had a beginning. Um, and he is now um, in a unique position in this world, and I think that we should be aware of this. So here's a few different texts to describe simply his position in this world right now. In John 12, 31, he is, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So just wanted you to know something. He's called the ruler of this world. And he's called that in John 12. He's also called that in John 14. He's also called that in John 16. Ruler of this world. John 1, John, 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So this quotation here is written by John, and it's about 60 years after the first quotes are made about him being the ruler is is cast out. So whatever the casting out meant and its imminence, it's still, he's still there, and he's still in power of the whole world 60 years later, as John writes it in 1 John 5. Uh, The Spirit of God says this through Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, keeping them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. And finally, Ephesians 2.2, 2, in which you once walked following, so this is us, that's you, this is me, if you're Christian, this is us, if you're not a Christian, this is still you, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So there are a handful of short statements when we introduce you to the concept of who Satan is, who the devil is. He's in charge of this world. God is sovereign over all things, but he is, in God's own words here, the God of this world, the one who has power over this world. He doesn't work alone. He has, he has beings that work for him. We tend to call those demons. Um, he's very much a true and present threat for the believer. He's not a legend. He's not an impersonal force. Um, but we can't attribute the, character, the attributes of God to him. He's not everywhere at all times. He doesn't know everything all the time. In fact, I think even our passage today about Jesus being tempted by Satan, I think Satan is on a learning mission because I think there are many things that God says not even the angels know. There are mysteries that have been unfolded, right? And uh, this, he's on part of the learning curve of exactly Jesus because he and Jesus have a long, long history before this point. But he doesn't understand at this point really yet fully or is discovering the incarnation of Jesus into humanity. 
So these passages here shows who Satan is, shows the power that he holds. He's of great, vast power and significance in this world. And he is now allowed to exist for a time, but will be thrown into hell in the end and punished there for eternity. He has, um, he has a number of powers. He has a number of powers. He is able to um, truly t- tempt people. But he has to do this with the approval of God. We see this back in the Old Testament, the book of Job. It's the first time we really see uh, a lot of words coming out of his mouth. We see it back in Genesis, but we actually think Job is probably written before Genesis. And we see this great, these great strange displays in the, in the council of heaven where, where Satan is coming before God, wanting to say, hey, jo- I see that guy, Job. That guy, Job. Job's a special guy. And he goes, he, he only likes you because you do good things for him. He's throwing the accusations against him there. And he has to ask God for permission to be able to go after him. And God, in perfect love, in perfect wisdom, in perfect compassion, agrees to this and says yes. In the same way that God, in perfect love, perfect grace, perfect compassion, sends his son to be tempted by Satan. Because in the end, it is better for him, right? We know that Christ entered all these things for the joy that was set before him. A couple weeks ago, we were in Hebrews. For the joy that was set before him, there was a great joy at the end of this. This wasn't like an unnecessary cruelty that God had to subject Job to, or subject Jesus to, or subject any of us to. It is a good thing when he does it. It is incredibly hard and frightening when he does it. But Satan does not have authority over God. And Satan does not have authority over you if you are a believer. If you're not a believer, you are completely under his authority and unescapable of it. And if you feel like, if you feel like hey, he, he can do nothing to me, I'm just telling you, he's riding you like an old bike. Hops on and on out of you whenever he wishes. You have no defense against him. There's one, only one who can defend you from Satan. And that is Jesus Christ. And until you then, he's just a puppet. Just a puppet. Like he's going to take you when he wants you because he is the God of this world, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. And I was a son of disobedience. By God's grace, he's come and saved me. And I'm protected from him by my great father who administrates that with perfect wisdom. So he's now allowed to exist for a time. We'll be thrown to hell in the end and punished there for eternity. He is able to tempt us as believers. Um, we as believers, we only see this personal temptation way a couple times in the New Testament, so we can't probably just easily equate this to all of us in our life or like, you know, just like Jesus hit the temptation in the, in the desert, I was tempted this way at Starbucks. Um, probably something a little bit different going on here, right? But he has many who work for him, and he is still a current threat. We're told to watch out for him in First Peter. Watch out for him because your adversary, like, like, a, like a roaring lion, wars, roar, sorry, let me say it again. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he's out there. He's looking. He wants to devour. Paul tells us to be aware of what he does. 2 Corinthians 2.11 tells us to be on guard for his common moves to, to stoke broken unity and separation and strife between people of the church, to promote the withholding of forgiveness. It's in 2 Corinthians 2.11. But we're not left alone. I think, I think mistake number one is that we don't understand who our adversary is, how strong, how incredible strong he is. Number two, we don't know what he's looking for. See, we think of Job and we're like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't bear the thought of being attacked by Satan. But actually what we're thinking is I can't bear the thought of being affected by the tools of Satan. We're usually not thinking about I can't bear the thought of the aim of Satan. In Job, the killing of, of, his, of his family, 
the loss of all those things. Those were tools that wasn't the end of Satan. The end of Satan was to bring distrust and separation, unbelief between Job, of, of Job towards God. That was his aim. He wanted unbelief. There's a difference between tools and aim. So one of the things almost all of us do in our humanity as strong believers, whatever, our first concern is the tools of Satan. When we think of Satan, we're like, I dread the tools. I do too. I mean, just read that. Read Job. Who wants that? Who wants boils? Who wants the loss? Who wants your wife like turning on you and saying, curse God and die? Who wants these horrible, horrible things? And if I'm honest with you guys, I, I most naturally dread the tools of Satan, not the aim of Satan. And as long as I dread the, tool, the tools of Satan more than the aims of Satan, he's already won. <laughs> the victory's already there. He's already winning in that trajectory. I have to be undone out of that winning all the time, the weakness of my heart. I'd encourage you to think about that. When it comes to Satan, are you clear on the difference between the tools of Satan and the aim of Satan? Will you by faith before Christ say, Christ, this is the aim of Satan that is the terror, unbelief towards you. That is the terror. That's what he's going for, and that's what I have to fight against with all my heart. I can't dread the tools of Satan, as dreadful and hideous and as unthinkable as they are. I can't dread those more than his aim. Because the moment I dread those more than his aim, his aim is already accomplished in me. So know the difference between tool and aim because this one is vicious and he's looking for us. But hope is not lost because we have a couple things on our side. If you think back to John 17, John, if you haven't read John 17 for a little while, put that on your hit list. At the end, Jesus is having the high priestly prayer with the Father and he's praying to the Father, Father, please, please, Guard them from the evil one. At the end, the, Jesus has asked the Father to guard you from the evil one. Jesus has taken the, the protection that the Father commissioned him with. He's given it back to the Father. He's called the Father to do this. Jesus then, in Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, you know how it finishes, right? Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. The words literally there are deliver us from the evil one. So the Father is telling the Son to tell all the sons and daughters, here's how you pray. You pray through these categories of the Lord's Prayer, and the thing you finish off with is, Father, please protect me, protect us, protect us, not just me, from the evil one. Protect me, protect my family, protect our church from this one who is the living predator. And then on top of that, Jesus says, through John in 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So here's the amazing thing. Um, we are no match for this enemy who still hunts and attacks Christ's church family, but he is no match for the spirit who dwells in you. He is outgunned by the spirit who's in you. So we have a tendency to think the spirit is some kind of little tiny fluttering bird back there that like gives me a little inclination here and there. But no, no, this is the spirit of the living God by which the Son and the Father come and abide with you, make their tabernacle with you. And he is strong, and he's far stronger than Satan, who God says, watch out for, pray against, Jesus prays against. We are told the spirit of God who is in us is so helpful to us because he himself is stronger than he who is in the world. So we must understand and fight to remember that his fearful tools of attack are not our truest threat, it is the aim of those tools, unbelief in Christ. We can't give in to mission accomplished. Satan is real and is to be known, watched out for, prayed against, resisted in our hearts like Jesus did perfectly. We do this not with panic, but with a somber grasp on the reality of his power. 
a clear understanding of the true danger of his aims over his tools, and a greater confidence and peace in the Father who will protect us through the ultra-powerful Spirit of God within us. And yet that's not the last moment in what we do with him. Our last piece is this. Jesus knew his great need was the Father. So Jesus is, shall we say, face-to-face with Satan or ear-to-ear with Satan. or We don't exactly know how this is exactly working. Look in verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Later on he goes, If you are the Son of God, cast you down. And then the third time he says, Hey, worship me and get all this. So he starts here with, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Well, here's the deal. Jesus isn't wondering if he's the Son of God. Jesus knows that he's the Son of God. has known it for quite some time. Satan apparently knows that this is now the Son of God. And what he's doing is he's coaxing him. Coaxing him to do something that only God can do. Because if you're the Son of God, you are divine. Then let's see you do this divine thing to solve your own needs. So he's coaxing him to speak something into existence is what he's doing. He's coaxing him to do something only God can do. He says, he said, if you're the son of God, literally speak that these stones may become loaves of bread. So Satan knows God spoke the world into existence. How powerful is God? He says, let it be. Light, boom. (laughs) Darkness, boom. Earth, boom. You, boom. Like he speaks it into existence. He didn't have to like order some clay off of Amazon or something like that and form it as something. Ex nihilo, he created it out of nothing. There was nothing before him. So he knows, God, God, Satan knows that he spoke everything into existence. Satan knows that he upholds all things by the word of his power. He knows that he is speaking, proving, sufficiently conveying himself. He knows the, the power of God's words. And the summary of Satan's first attack is not show me that you're God. He's saying, as the son of God, you have the right to you and you have the divine power, so why don't you take for yourself what you really need, which is some food? So he's conceding that he's the Son of God. Why don't you take for yourself what you really need? And Jesus answers in verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus has two things in simplicity here. Number one, he's unfazed. He maintains the submissive, dependent, and obedient posture towards his father. His father put him there. His father called him to fast through the leading of the spirit. So he maintains that position. His answer is even heightened. He quotes out of um, Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he says those words, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what he's saying there is this heightened phrase, meaning True need isn't any particular thing that our desire, wisdom, that we need from God. It's not a thing. Our true need is everything that comes out of his mouth. My need isn't this. My need is that. I need everything he has to say to me. That is my need, not this here. And in doing that, Satan does this crazy thing. Satan pokes the lion in the eye and gets a mouthful, right? Jesus comes forth with the words of God given in Deuteronomy. Now, as the living word of God... Satan unleashes something wild that moment. It's an amazing piece. It's a shift from looking here to looking there. My need isn't here. My need is everything that he has to say. That is what my need is. Number two, rather than biting temptation, using his divine fo- his voice to fix the moment and make some bread, which you could easily do because we saw way more than bread. We saw a whole storm system flatten in a moment when he stands up in the front of a boat. Bread's easy sauce. 
So rather than biting, biting the temptation, using his divine voice to fix the moment, he used the Father's divine voice. He quoted Scripture. Fight temptation like Jesus with the word, not just Bible notions. Brothers and sisters, let's just talk one moment about Bible memory. Jesus fought the devil with the Bible. It has always been the plan of God that we would memorize his word. Um, in one of my favorite sermons ever about biting in Christ, John Piper has this quote. I actually put, asked the guys to put this link to the sermon. When you go home, watch this on YouTube and follow the link. It's one of my favorite sermons in the world. It's Piper on some Bible memory. But he says this, Memorizing scripture enables me to hit the devil in the face with a force he cannot resist and so protect myself and my family from his assaults. And he says, what are you hitting him with? He's millions of times stronger than you, and he hates you and your family and your marriage and this church and God. How anybody walks through this devil-ruled world without a sword in their hand is beyond me. Like, we not only have the Spirit of God who's stronger than he is in the world, but we have the sword of God. We have the word of God. It is what Jesus needed to have and had in his heart to combat Satan with. So if you want to watch out for your adversary that roams this world, you are helpless unless you have God's word memorized to use in those times, both in your heart and to his face. If you are to endure temptation, you must have fuel. You need this food for the race of faith and the battle of mission. The cold winter of trial, loss, suffering, and death will be coming to you. You will die. And are you gathering the wood of memorized word to sustain your heart in those days? Are you storing up the lumber? Um, I'm just really, really so thankful to... Um, Mega Bales and uh, Andrew and Ange and a couple of you guys who put a lot of work into this, this giant piece of paper, which is in the back for you, is um, recently made it. I mean, honestly, this is a huge thing. It's 50 verses that we think every Christian should know. Um, and if you don't know these 53, 50 verses, we'd encourage you to memorize them all within the first couple of years of being in Cross City. They're not that hard, um, but they are just bread and butter. And honestly, it was a battle to get it down to these 50. There are some, there are some amazing verses that fell off the edge of this pile. But these are 50 that we think are pretty broadly strong, will give you a good foundation in your walk with Jesus as the first place to start. So that's free. It's in the back. It's kind of hard cardstock if it's in your Bible. Thank you guys so much for battling that through and designing it for us. We have to memorize God's word. Like Christ, each of us will be tested to demonstrate what our ultimate need truly is. Will our hearts opt for the bread, career, money, love, or name as our true need? Or will our hearts follow Christ in not choosing our own solutions and visions for our short earthly lives, but rather holding tight to God, waiting for him, filling our hearts and minds with his word to seek every word coming from the mouth of God? Let's pray. Father, I pray for your help. I thank you for your help. You've given us your word. You gave us your son. Your son listened to your word, memorized your word. Your son um, endured temptation perfectly for us. And Jesus, we praise your name for that. We praise you for going hungry for 40 days in the wilderness for us. And we praise you for memorizing you, the Father's word. And we praise you for s slamming Satan in the face with your word and for showing us that our need is not what's in front of us. Our need is all the thoughts, all the truths, all the communication from our Heavenly Father. And so we thank you for that. And we ask that you would please help us to have a healthy respect and apprehension for Satan and a far more eager and joyful confidence in the love of the Father and the indwelling of the Spirit and the power of the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit that we have at our disposal. May you please win our hearts with these things. And all my brothers and sisters said,